All right, everybody, welcome back to Reluctant Psalm Podcast with Chris. I have my first official guest. Uh, his name is John Lancaster. He's been the beverage director at uh, Boulevard Restaurant here in San Francisco for how many years now? I quit counting at 20. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does it count backwards after yeah, 20? It's getting less now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, beyond that, um, John, you, you used to work at uh, Cypress Club. The Cypress Club, I, yeah. I, I always hear about, it's always something that's kind of talked about, and, and so this, since closed, I looked something up and it looked like it closed in the last five years, but from my understanding it closed quite a while ago. Quite a while ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, I know it wasn't Coletto-esque, but it, it kind of reminded me of a similar um, design style, kind of that, like early 80s kind of design, a lot of pop metal stuff. Yeah, it right? was uh, brushed copper. Uh, the designer, but I haven't thought of this name in a long time, was Jordan Mosier, I okay. think was his name. Okay. I think he was out of Chicago, if I remember correctly. But it was uh, a super cool design and uh, really high energy kind mm -hmm. of place. And I got my first opportunity there to, to work with a great wine list. And um, I worked there with uh, Master Somalia, Michael Bonacorsi, and Tim Gazer, another mm -hmm. master, mm -hmm. and a couple guys who went through you know almost the entire program. So it was really a well-schooled uh, SOM team, and you know it was really the first place I worked at that had a great wine program and serious wine service. Yeah. Okay. It was the, super fun. The uh, I mean the pictures look so cool, and and to kind of like know you now and to know that that's somewhere where you consider to have like cut your teeth in a way no doubt it's yeah. uh it's I, I wish that it was still there because i wish that's something that i could visit yeah and then the design was was so striking in a way people would just walk in the door and just go wow yeah. you know yeah and uh the room had a great feel to it i mean it might the today it might look a little dated i don't know i mean it's it's all been redone now so it's just in pictures uh but at the time it was uh, it was one of the coolest rooms in the city. Mm -hmm. The um, the list of uh, of a restaurant at that time um, was it let's say as hefty as some of the other restaurants lists in the city. I mean, was it a large list or was it just well curated or? I mean, we covered all the bases. It wasn't a super large list like you know like Ernie's around the mm -hmm. corner. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the day, they had all the fifty nine and sixty one first gross and all that kind of thing. So it wasn't that, but it was really well curated. And we had, you know, uh, good lists of Burgundy and Bordeaux and all the California producers that you want to have. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it was a good, it was a good, uh, really good wine program. I mean, not like a wine spectator grand award winner, right, right. but, but, but a really good program. And, and, you know, sometimes for the, you know, individual proprietorships, you know, Building those gargantuan wine lists is—it's expensive. Yeah, you know. I mean, not only is it expensive, but I feel in some cases it may be somewhat of a hindrance. It has to be at some point. I mean, I've seen some of the Grand Spectator Award lists. I mean, the article came out recently. You've—you've you've remained in the remained in the best of award best of, best of award yep. still yep. Uh, for how many years now? Seventeen or something like that. Something yeah, like close that. to twenty, probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I was looking at, I think it was, uh, uh, not Brennan's, not Vic and Anthony's, um, Mastro's in Houston, mm -hmm. which I was actually, I was living in Texas when they were building Mastro's, and it's essentially a giant 
hotel Skyrise or something, and then they put Mastro's in it as well. Um, but the list I think I was looking at is 6,000 wines or something like that on the list. I, and I understand, you know, um, wanting to have the variety, but at some point, I mean, does it, does it become too much? I don't know. It just you're creating yourself as a wine destination, mm-hmm. and uh, so you'll get people to come just just for the wine. I mean, I th- I have to say I think it's kind of cool because yeah. a lot of these lists, you know, they'll they just have antiquities and stuff you just can't get anywhere else, and so it's cool to see them, you know, and hopefully they they always translate at the table. Um, I, I think it's fun. I, I appreciate people who put that much time and energy and effort into the wine program. I mean, to me, I can't tell you the last time in my life I had dinner without wine with it. Right. It's just such a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when, when somebody really puts in that big an effort, I, I, I always personally kind of appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I like that. No, I, um, I mean, this, this is the largest list that I ever had the opportunity to work with. I'm, after a while in Houston, Galveston area, the wine industry wasn't, I mean, it wasn't even a fraction of San Francisco's wine industry, but, um, you know, they had places, people liked wine, a a hundred bottle list was substantial. That was the place to go if you wanted wine, that was the place. And here in San Francisco, it just seems like there's so much, so much wine, so many varieties and and so many um, lists that are, you know, well-versed, not too, uh, not too focused on like one particular uh, region or anything like that. And I think, interestingly enough, I think when I was out there, um, also there was a Greek restaurant that won an award for their wine list, and it was an entirely Greek wine list, which, which I also thought was interesting as well. But I don't know. It seems like uh, the, the world's like opening up a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think like here in the city, like, Shelley Lindgren at A16, you know, mm-hmm. kind of created just an Italian list that was really focused. Yep. And, you know, it really worked. Yeah. It really worked. Yeah. And it was cool. And I, I think a lot of people really appreciated that. And it was something a little bit different. I mean, it seems like right now in this day and age, there's less of the big programs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, you know, it seems like now there's a lot of smaller restaurants that have little smaller, real, you know, focused wine lists. I mean, I think that's much harder to write than a big list. Right. Like, you know, if you make me choose between Literai and Peter Michael and Aubert mm-hmm. and, you know, what, you know, some of these, you know, great California producers, it's hard. I yeah. want to say yes to them all. Right, right. You know, and, and so, um, you know, a, a big list, you know, when, when somebody is really putting the effort in and getting the right things from the right vintages, I, I, I think they're works of art. I, I love them. Yeah. You know? And, and, and I appreciate those guys who write, and, and I've, I've seen a few recently, like 70 or 85 item wine lists, and they're really good wine lists. Right. And they're really tailored to the food and what that business is. And, I'm, and I, I look at those and I'm like, man, somebody did a really nice job with this. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's so many bottles on this list I want to have. Right. So. Especially if it goes with the cuisine. I mean, to me, I think that's kind of like, the most integral part and maybe not for everybody you know you get some business travelers and you get some road warriors and they come in and they want you know their generic napa cabs but having the ability to have something that pairs really beautifully with the food or pairs with any course uh offered i think is really really fun i mean your list here i love the fact that it's not you know antiquated exclusively into 
just French wine and California wine. I mean, you branch off, you have a substantial selection of Austrian wines, German wines, and I would say, you know, in a sense, more Austrian wines than you see at most places. But I think, you know, part of the reason is is the, the versatility with the food. And a good chunk from Italy as well. Right. And, you know, we partially, um, I like those wines, so that's part of it. Mm. And But they work for us, and uh, we're able to sell them, and they kind of have earned and deserve their spot on the list and they're not just sitting there collecting dust and right. we kind of are able to you know move through them and and so that's always good and I you know I've always kind of you know the the menu at Boulevard is certainly rooted in in California and, and local products but it, it also has kind of a global view of food and so I think that the wine list should as well and so it, you know, we we love California wine, but also we love to drink, you know, Tuscan Sangiovese. We love Nebbiolo, of course, Barolo. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, Burgundy is Mecca. And so we want to kind of have all those kind of things and, and have, you know, be able to fit a lot of different palates and a lot of different, you know, if somebody wants to come in and drink kind of a classic Napa Cabernet, well, we need to have that. Yeah. And also, you know, if they want to come in and drink Burgundy with a little bit of age, we should have that too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We, we try and do those kind of things. And, you know, it, it's it's fun to walk around the dining room and, and have and have all these, uh, you know, quills ready to go, you know, so that makes work and service really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I was, I was, uh, Let's see, I was reading some uh, old interviews uh, that you were in to try to touch on some c- certain things or kind of like uh, bring things up and see if you still feel the same way that you feel. Um, but one of the big things for me that I kind of wanted to touch on, it, it goes a lot into when you first started in the restaurant industry and when you kind of made the decision to jump uh, towards the wine industry. Was there ever one wine to you in, in the history of of tasting that that really stood out to you struck you as the the aha bottle or the aha moment i don't know if there was really one i mean uh it was learning about burgundy at the cypress club and also for me like the one kind of aha label uh when i met my wife and i first started collecting wine it was uh, mouton rothschild Mm -hmm. and uh when when we got uh, engaged, we drank a bottle of 83 Mouton, and I'd been into wine a bit already by then, but I, you know, Mouton was always just uh, the coolest thing to me, and Philippe Rothschild starting the artist-inspired labels, you know, especially with the 45. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had lunch once when I was working at Cypress Club with uh, Philippine, his daughter, and she was just one of those larger-than-life kind of people. And uh, it just cemented that for me and for being a Mouton lover just because she was so incredible. Um, she had just flown, you know, all had a red eye, and we went out to lunch in San Francisco, and she was the most gregarious, charming, funny person at the table, and she'd been up all night mm-hmm. flying. Yeah. And uh, she had more energy than the rest of us put together, and she was, she was so incredible, and it was such a great experience. And uh, it just showed me so much, you know, the people behind the wine sometimes, they make the wine taste even better, and, right. and she did that for me. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, you know... Uh, I don't know if there's one specific bottle, but uh, you know, learning about Burgundy from Mike Bonacorsi at Cypress Club was mm-hmm. great. You know, uh, Mike was a great blind taster, and um, so that's kind of where I, I started my Burgundy education mm-hmm. there. I started Bordeaux kind of on my own. Right, right. 
that's awesome. And and back then, the the wines you could get at a, a reasonable price. I mean, you weren't you know. Yeah, much more so than today. Putting a second mortgage on your house, right? To get, much to get more a so than today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, back then, you, you know, you could um, you could buy Mouton. I mean, I bought some vintages of Mouton here when I lived in San Francisco, um, and they they were under a hundred dollars a bottle. Wow. You know, and yeah, you know. Not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. No, no. Um, I was uh, I was just at uh, Howells in the Marino on Chestnut Street, and he has a really great, um, really great cellar and a really great selection of things. And I mean, he has essentially his his list is really interesting because it's um, a BTG wine bar, mm-hmm. and then he has you know a wine cellar where he's offering. Eight, nine, maybe ten vintages of Mouton, and he's got you know a handful of other things, that, and they're all priced at a, I think a reasonable price. After, after you get to a certain point, I think a, a double markup is appropriate. We've kind of had that discussion. Yeah. When you get into the thousand dollar price range, yeah, do you need to charge thirty percent? I mean, do you need to make a three thousand dollar bottle of wine, or is it is it a two thousand dollar bottle of wine? And. Um, and it's just really cool to go in and be able to see the labels side by side for something oh, yeah. like Mouton Rothschild. Like yeah. the, the 2000 bottle, I think, has gold in the label or something like that. It's like a sheep. No, what is it? Lamb? What's there? I can't remember the 2000. Yeah, the yes. Is. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really uh, interesting to be able to see all of the labels like that. I mean, clearly out of, out of my price range. Maybe a, a celebratory bottle here or there, but... Uh, but yeah, that being said, uh, on the price point front, um, you know, with a two-time markup on most things, I think that here in San Francisco, that your wine list is incredibly reasonably priced. And I know that's something that we've talked about before that is always slightly an uphill battle in some cases. Um, but I do feel like I've seen a little bit more of a, a new wave of restaurants kind of moving into an inexpensive program and focusing more on like getting a bottle on the table less than just getting money out of the bottle. Right. And, you know, I've uh, I've always been a proponent of, you know, getting wine in front of people and not not making it so expensive and and not making it elitist Mm. and that, you know, hopefully everybody can have a bottle or or everyone who wants to have a bottle can have a bottle and and trying to have the wine list reflect that. Right. And, uh, you know, it's not that hard to write a wine list with all just big dogs. Mm-hmm. And we can all just go buy First Gross and buy Grand Cru Burgundy and have our super expensive wine list, but how much wine are you gonna sell? So the idea is to, is to work at finding some things that are really good that aren't that expensive mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit out of the mainstream, but, but really good values and really good things. And that gives the wine list some kind of complexity and depth. And on a Wednesday night, when somebody comes in and they're not really you know looking for a celebration wine, they wanna, get something that goes well with their dinner that's affordable, then, you know, hopefully we have those kind of things. And and that's kind of the way we try and write the list here, we kind of have a little of both mm-hmm. and um, some really, you know, fun special occasion wines and, and also some stuff that you can drink every night of the week. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's, that's kind of, I think, the, you know, the saying, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, but if you're taking care of both sides of the fence, then the grass is always green. You know, you, you can't have the customer that comes in every night and spends $1,000 on a bottle of wine. So you have to make sure that you're catering for, you know, some of the people that are coming in and spending $60, $70 on a bottle and still delivering a quality product. If they come in and they, 
trust you with their eighty dollars and the product doesn't deliver, it's kind of one of those things where like why it kind of puts a, a mark on the restaurant as a whole, I think. Um, if you go in and you spend fifty bucks on a steak and it's not an amazing steak, why do you it's kind of hard to justify to go back, you know? Yeah, I mean, you tr- you try and, and continue to deliver to look to deliver value, and value can be at different price points mm-hmm. too, as well. You know, sometimes there can be value at the higher end of the wine list as well. Like, you know, you might have you might have something that you're just really fired up about, and you want to get in front of people, and and so you take less of a markup. So mm-hmm. really, at a, at a higher price point. It's more expensive, but there still is value there because you're getting something great. Right. And, uh, you know, the the goal in, in a restaurant like Boulevard and like so many, it's it's kind of um, delivering an experience that you can't do at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, so hopefully when people leave, they will have that feeling like, man, that was really good. And if you can continue to do that, you know, no one's perfect, but if you try and continue to do that, then you're going to be successful. Well, I think that you guys have been doing that here for quite a long time. I mean, um, in my tenure here, it was amazing to hear how many people would come in and say, we had our first date here 20 years ago, or the first time we came to San Francisco 15 years ago, we came here and we had to come back. And to, to hear kind of the, the mystique of a restaurant of Boulevard and, and kind of hear all about the, the reputation and then to work here and find out that it's really just like good intention hard work is really fantastic there's no trickery there's no wool over the eyes it's, it's just high quality work and and caring i think it's it's been eyes. super fun to be a part of and, and those those are the stories that you know we've heard them so many times here and i can't think of anything right now more gratifying um that people come say oh i remember you from back and 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 we had that oh my god you know what, what should we have tonight i mean uh, that just you know makes uh makes your job makes your career just so rewarding and so much fun mm-hmm. you know I, all these years i've worked here a long time and you know nobody's ever had had to ask me to come to work i, I love my job and and coming here and doing it has, has always been a blast really fun uh, we work hard at times, but it's rewarding. And um, when you're at a at a place like Boulevard that's has a checkered past, and you know we've won all the awards and stuff, and it's really really been fulfilling to be a part of that. Yeah, and with the evolution of the restaurant, in the time that you've seen the restaurant kind of change, you've seen a drastic change in the city. And since yeah. you know the the tech boom, um, have you noticed? Uh, incredible change in the style of wine that's being bought or is it more of a different price point or or how, how do you think that the the youthful wine buyers have been buying in comparison to some of the i don't you know here i don't think it's really changed all that much you know um we've we've kind of grown up with our clientele in a way and when we first opened you know it was about a 150 skew wine list or so. I wasn't here in the very beginning. I came a couple years after. Um, now it's about a thousand skews on the wine list, and it's, it seems to be a good number for us. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where about where we're going to be. Um, and as the wine drinking public um, ha- has really matured and and learned more, and we've kind of gone together in that way. And so we just have a, a bigger list and more stuff and more interesting things hopefully and people have you know 
there's some good old California labels like you know pick your name cake bread or something mm -hmm. so people have graduated from the cake breads to to, to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and uh, it's been it's been a fun process you know being here all this time there's there's so many people who just come in and uh, sit down and say no you know you don't need to leave a wine list that guy over there see him yeah. he picks for me <laughs> you know so so that that's that you know we've kind of uh, you know wine is a is a bigger part of the uh, you know revenue stream now than it was in the early days but but we've just kind of grown with our clientele kind of together mm -hmm. yeah I love that I mean whatever Every time I worked here, there's 70, 80% of the floor would have a, a bottle of wine on the table. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's really amazing, I think. And that's really a, kind of a testament of why people come to the restaurant. There's so many restaurants you go to and people aren't drinking or they're, you know, having cocktails or whatever. And certainly a cocktail program here is great. The whiskey selection is fantastic. But to, to see the, the success of the wine program, I think, is really really amazing because even you know if you go to a michelin star restaurant they offer wine pairings they offer these really wonderful bottles of wine but sometimes people go in and are just eating the food because you know maybe the the food program itself is a little expensive and they don't have the money for the pairing but you know having things that are affordable and kind of again in everybody's price point if somebody can come in and spend 70 dollars on food and then get themselves a you know a nice bottle of wine it, it's great that they can kind of create and customize their own experience yeah and and you know one thing we've always done here also is have a pretty robust wine by the glass program mm -hmm. and in Nora you, you know normally we pour somewhere around 35 or so wines by the glass so a lot of choices a lot of different things and and I always you know I always like to pour things by the glass that are good mm -hmm. I mean I like to you know pour some things I'm really proud of and also, I want to pour some things that are price point driven for sure. Um, but also, I want to have a strong wine by the glass program. So if somebody's coming in and they're just going to have you know one glass of wine, they can get something good. Right. And that's kind of the idea there. Yeah, that and your half bottle selection, I would say, are, are really fantastic. Oftentimes, you know, my girlfriend and I will go out, and maybe we don't want to commit on one bottle of wine because, say, we're going to have three or four different things that we're going to eat. We wish that we could get a whole bottle of white and a whole bottle of red, but it's not every night to two-bottle night. Um, and so having the ability to, to get some half bottles or to get some really fantastic, memorable wines by the glass, I think, is is a, a game-changer as well. The list is, is complete not only on the bottle selection, but also on the, the by-the-glass and half-bottle offering. Yeah, when you can get, like, half-bottles are getting a little bit tougher and tougher mm -hmm. at times because a lot of producers that used to, it's not always you know, financially a great decision for them. You know, it's a double the amount of corks, foils, labels, bottles, all that. So it's a, it's more expensive for them to do. Mm -hmm. So when you can get really good things in half bottles, I love it. Um, we do have like a dining counter. And so there's a lot of times there's single diners or traveling businessmen or whatever. And so they sit down on, and they want to get a bottle of wine, but they're like, you know, I'm by myself. I don't, I, I don't want a full bottle of wine. Like, do you have a half bottle list? And so you know, having a cool half bottle list, we sell a lot of them. We, we do well with them. And it's not only like sometimes it might be a couple, they're like, you know, I, I want 
a really cool, oh, we'll get a half bottle of white and then a bottle of red mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Right. Or, or maybe they'll get a, a, a bottle of white, she'll continue with the white and he'll have a half bottle of Bordeaux with his lamb or something, right. you know, whatever. Right. Um, so I, I think, you know, half bottles in that way give you flexibility, you know, things, ability to do more things. And, and a lot of times, you know, a bottle of wine might just be too big a wine investment for that night. Mm-hmm. So when you can get a really good half bottle, sometimes it really fits perfectly. Yeah. Um, let's see, what else are we going to talk about? Oh, so currently we're drinking a Syrah uh, from PAX, uh, the Hermit 2014. Is that what I... 14. Yeah, I was just up at the tasting room. I'm glad that we can drink this together. But uh, you are a fan of Syrah, not just as a as the drinker, but you're also a fan of Syrah to produce Syrah. Yes. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about Skylark Wines and, and some of the... Some of the things that are coming out of there? Sure, uh, sure. It's getting to be harvest time. Uh, um, I started Skylark uh, in 2002 with my then uh, assistant, long before you, Chris, mm-hmm. uh, Robert Perkins. <laughs> so Rob and I have been making Skylark together. We really got serious about it in like 2005. And uh, so we make several different things, one of which is Syrah. Mm. Um, there's a vineyard on the Sonoma Coast. It's kind of in the Petaluma Gap, basically. Uh, new AVA, by the way, Petaluma yep. Gap mm-hmm. AVA. So we're in that. Um, the vineyard is called Rogers Creek. Um, it was planted with a Cote Roti clone awesome. on this ridge in the Petaluma Gap. So it's really kind of cool climate grape growing. And I, I always describe it a lot of times is that the vineyard's kind of got one foot in the new world and one foot in the old world. Mm-hmm. Gets those kind of spice uh, aromatics that you get from like cut roti, mm-hmm. but then also it gets California ripeness. And right. uh, I think it's a, a really cool vineyard. It's one of my favorite vineyards we work with, or maybe my favorite vineyard that we work with. And um, I am a total fan of Syrah. Um, one of my best days in the wine business or in my life was uh, walking around Hermitage with Jean Louis Chave and barrel tasting with Jean-Louis and uh, you know that he's one of the great producers on planet earth and humble guy and um, you barrel taste with him is a total education in Syrah and the different climats in Hermitage that they work with Um, totally you know great family very very special Um, I love to drink you know Cornas as well um, from Auguste Klopp got you know Mm -hmm. Auguste passed a while back but um and Thierry Alamond those they those wines just have so much site specificity and soul and they're just they're so good and um I, I can't do anything quite like that on the Sonoma Coast but I do the best I can with the site we have and um I, I love to drink Syrah um we we do sell a lot of it here at Boulevard with lamb the Syrah and lamb is a uh, beautiful Classic. match mm-hmm. um, I like this PAX a lot I, I've known PAX for a long time and I like the fact that this is not just sweet California fruit right. but it's got some earth and some spice and uh, um, it's kind of medium bodied plus and it's really got a nice style to it a lot of flavor and there's a little bit of that lavender and red raspberry and the texture is really nice the tannins are at this point you know seven years old they're pretty nice and integrated, well integrated but the, yeah. but they're there mm-hmm. you know the the structure is there so this is a wine that still has has a future to it which i think is a, is a nice thing i mean sometimes when you drink these sweet fruit sweet oak young wines 
they just don't last. And so this this is a wine that's going to age and is you know it's seven years old already is is aged nicely and great color. Uh, really, really a fun drink. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I love this wine. When we went um, to the tasting room, we were lucky enough to taste through. It's interesting. They have like a flight four wines, and then they have whites into rosés, and then the one that I got was actually two Syrahs and two Beaujolais. They're growing three Gamay? different... Oh, sorry. Yeah, Gamay. So they're doing um, uh, three different Gamay uh, uh, wines that they're producing. And um, it was really interesting to be able to kind of taste them side by side. California Gamay, in general, I think, is is just fun to be able to taste because it's not as common, I, I guess, as things warm up a little bit, you know, it's, it's going to be a yeah, little Yeah, I think we have some thing, education to do in this country on Gamay and, and what a really good grape it is. I mean, maybe Beaujolais Nouveau has ruined that a little bit, um, but there are very serious, really good Gamay wines and that are fun to drink and really versatile with meat and potatoes mm-hmm. and those kind of things. And, um, I, you know, growing and getting some good California Gamay, I think, is a great idea. It's I mean, great it's, idea. it sounds like a sounds like a challenge, but I, I know things are things are changing a little bit, and you know, people have started growing Nebbiolo more, um, which I know that was apparently impossible to grow 15, 20 years ago, just because of the the finickiness. I don't know if that's a word. The finickiness of the grape itself, um, but I know you know Pinot Noir is, is also known to be incredibly difficult to grow, and and to be able to see it grown at, uh, on a grander scale across the coast, I think, is really interesting as well. Um, so besides Syrah, you also make one of my favorite go-to wines is, is Skylark Pink Belly. I love Skylark Pink Belly. I think that it's a, a fantastic wine. All of your wines, I think, are ridiculously affordable, especially since you have several site-specific bottlings that you're doing. But the pink belly, I think, is just a slam dunk. Well, thank you. Um, that is rosé we make from a Grenache Vineyard in Mendocino that uh, that we farm for rosé. So no saignée there, just the r- real true way to make rosé. You know, picked early, you know, some time on the skins just to get some color, and then, you know, whole cluster pressed into a tank. Uh, we started making rosé in 2007. We made just a little bit. It was going to be... Uh, you know, John, John and Rob's house wine, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of grew from there. And we loved to drink rosé um, back then. You know, there there wasn't, you know, rosé wasn't then what it is now. That's what I, one and, of the questions I was going to ask. Yeah, I mean, you know, we would make a couple hundred cases and sell it out in like two or two weeks right. or something, you right. know. And now rosé uh, and, and uh, you know, I think it's great. Now rosé is a real thing, mm-hmm. and almost everybody in California makes rosé now. Um, when I first started, you know, in the wine business way back in the day, you know, rosé sales were terrible. You know, there, there were some producers who could sell, like Domaine Tampier um, would be one of the good examples. But the problem was half the people were afraid that the rosé would be sweet, right. and the other half wanted it to be sweet. Behringer White's in Right, world. so it took a long time for the wine-drinking public here to really latch on to and, and really appreciate, you know, dry, refreshing rosé. I mean, you know, Provence and Bandol in, in Europe, of course, uh, set great examples, and uh, so now, now people have really got on to dry rosé and get it and enjoy it, you know. And, you know, it's, it's just a summertime must-have, you know, for us. 
And we kind of drink it year round, although in the restaurant it seems like as the season changes, you know, rosé sales kind of wane. Um, but, I, you know, like you drink white wine year round, right? Yeah, true. Yeah, we drink yeah. rosé year round. Yeah. Uh, we love a little bit of that texture that the Grenache, I mean, I think Grenache is a great grape for it. It's got the acidity, um, it's got the brightness, and it's flavorful that, you know, fruits of summer, mm-hmm. you know, in the glass. And so, um, I also, I, I love the Pinot Blanc that we make. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a true Pinot Blanc clone um, that was planted uh, way back in the day by John Fetzer up across from his famous old Sundial Ranch Chardonnay Vineyard. I'm dating myself there, but um, so uh, we make, you know, we barrel ferment Pinot Blanc in stainless steel barrels. So it's like 30 different ferments you have, but that way we can stir the lees and really kind of dial it in. And uh, we realize the hard way that we don't want to stir the lees very much, you know, maybe once per harvest. Um, but uh, another kind of fresh, clean, bright white that, you know, we love to, we love to have on the kitchen counter while mm-hmm. we're making dinner, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and then we work with a couple Grenache vineyards, some Carignan. So it's, uh, it's been fun, humbling, uh, but, but really super fun. And, you know, this time of year harvest, I always look forward to it. And, and you know, each year is kind of, you know, you, you look in the mirror sometimes and say, I only have so many harvests. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, this is, I only have so, so many. So we, we really try to get it right and, and listen to what the vineyards are saying to us. And, um, and some of them, like, you know, Pinot Blanc we've been making since 2005. And I was out there this morning walking through it and taking some samples. And that's kind of like an old friend in a way. Right. You know, it's uh, I, I once I don't love the drive, but once I get there, just walking through the vineyard and being there, it's just it's kind of like home. Sure, it's peaceful also. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's, it's nature when, when it comes through and the years work. You know, it's, it's nature at its best. It's, it's, it's a great thing, you know, and it's, it's been fun to do, and I wish I'd have started earlier, but that, hey, what are you going to do? You know, you're, you're uh, lucky to be in it at all. Some people never, some people never get around to it. So the, um, uh, let's see, what was, one of the other things I was going to talk about was the, uh, the labeling. So one of the things that I think is always fun for me to tell people about when they order the Pink Belly uh, Rosé is the label. They always ask, what's up with the label? And so, uh, from my understanding, uh, it's artwork that's done by your partner. Yep. Yes. Yep. Rob is an artist besides a winemaker and sommelier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's kind of like an abstract of looking down at the, uh, at the curve of a vineyard, uh-huh. at like the California coastline, and then rows, okay. like rows of the vineyard. So looking, looking down on it, so it's a little bit of an abstract of that. I like that. Like, like thinking of the California coastline mm-hmm. and the curve and, and rows of a vineyard. Right. Um, so we, he wanted it kind of just clean and visual, mm-hmm. you know? And what we didn't want was the picture of a big chateau and vines. Right. That was like kind of not else. us. Yeah. That was, that was not yeah. us. So, uh, so he kind of used his art school background and kind of just created this visual. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. No, it's, it's really cool. And I, not every label is the same. Or are they all the same, just different colors? They're pretty much the same except for okay. different colors. Okay, okay, I see. Yeah. I, I know looking at them, I can tell which one's which just based off of the we color. We have a, a second um, label called Alandra. Right. And so um, that was originally just kind of like a, 
somewhat of a dark background with a bright kind of a brightish light mm -hmm. in the middle, and it was kind of supposed to be like looking into the sun. Right. Uh -huh. um, and so that we we do a couple things under the Alondra line mm -hmm. as well. Chardonnay, Cabernet. Yep, and we have a little uh, Syrah Grenache blend uh -huh. under the Alondra label. Yeah. Now, are you contracting the same fruit for both Alondra and Skylark? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I mean we. You know, it, it doesn't always work, you know, the producer-grower relationship, mm -hmm. but most of ours have. And so most of our vineyards, we've been with them for over a decade now, and, you know, uh, some unusual in the wine business these days, but we have some contracts that are just handshakes. Yeah. You know, it's like, we on? we're on for this year, right? Yep. Right. right. Send me a bill when you're ready, and you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I love those kind of relationships that we have with some of our growers. It's not, it's not much like a business relationship it's more like a friendship mm -hmm. and you know they they try and do everything they can to deliver us the best fruit they can right. and, and we try to interpret it you know for us and for them the best way we can and mm -hmm. show their vineyard in the best light we can obviously we're not perfect but but we we try and do our best to highlight that site certainly you know? yeah the uh nowadays if you were to want to buy fruit i mean is it just you just go online do you have to go to the wineries in particular and, and try to buy fruit is there or is there established houses that are just growers that most people are buying from? i mean there's uh, there's there's not any one specific way but mm. there, there are you know websites with people advertising tons of grapes yeah grapes from all wow. over i mean we we got all our fruit contracts in in different ways some of them were connections from here at boulevard um, some were friends of friends. Um, some were, you know, a winemaker would say, hey, you got to go look at this guy's vineyard. I know he's got some for sale. He's a really good grower, mm -hmm. you know, um, so so many different ways. Um, and, you know, a few times, it, you know, the long term hasn't worked out, but, but most of the time it has for us. Um, you know, sometimes when you have real thoughts about, crop loads and those things. I mean, the grower and the producer have to be on the same page. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if we want to go up to our Grenache vineyard and drop fruit, I mean, that's money on the ground for him. Yeah. Because, you know, he's, we're buying by the ton. And right. if you're dro dropping a couple tons on the ground, well, it's, so you have to see, you have to have a similar vision. Um, some of our, our vineyards, too, it's not an exact by the acre contract, but it's kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, so we'll pay you at least, you know, we'll pay you a minimum. We'll start from there and go right, up right. just so we can be on the same page. Like if there's a year where we need to drop or the crop's too heavy, whatever, and he's okay with going through and, yeah. and dropping fruit. And his his goal and our goal is hopefully the same thing. Like right. we want to get the best fruit we can. Right. Yeah. And now um, when you're producing these wines for your when you're producing, not necessarily for these people, when you're buying the grapes and you're producing the wines, how often is it that the growers want to taste the wine when it's finished? Do they just buy a bottle? Is there anything ever worked into a contract of Oh, no, we just give them wine. Yeah, okay. we give them a couple yeah, yeah. cases. That's give them cool. a case or two, whatever. Yeah. And, and, yeah, you know, um, that's just part of the deal. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I love yeah. that. I mean, that's, that's so cool to be able to, like, grow something and if, not necessarily that they couldn't make the wine. I'm sure they could if they really wanted to, but to be able to grow something and then have somebody make something out of it and then give it back to you. I oh, yeah. Think that's and, and also, so too, you know, like, you know, you might have a vineyard where there's different blocks or whatever, and, and mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, 
maybe one of your blocks comes up for sale. Well, it's nice to be able to pull out a bottle and say, okay, so this is from the block right across the road right there. This is what Skylark's doing with right, it. Right. You know, this is this is a you know good representation of what mm -hmm. we're doing. You know, they, they like to be able to do that as well. It's not like know? they can just hold on to a cluster of grapes until not the next so much. year. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> the um, shelf life. But not, when you when you walk long. through, I mean, you know, when we walk a vineyard, we, we talk about farming practices and or organics and bio, you know, sprays and mm -hmm. all those kind of things. Like, you know, you will see the site and walk through it and you get a feel pretty quickly. Right. For the most part, if you want to work with them or not, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And uh, certainly maybe there's been a couple times when, you know, a bigger name swooped in and, and got a block over us and well, hey I can understand that yeah. as well you yeah, know? yeah. Um, when a when a big famous winemaker comes in and says I want that yeah like yeah it's hard to say no to that right it's gonna put your vineyard on the map well, yeah. totally yeah totally yeah. and and also at times you know I'm sure all these growers like everybody else at some point has had a had a bad situation where they didn't get paid or you know payment was super late or something so when you have a real established winery that has a great protocol of, of paying people on time and all that yeah. that means something as well because ultimately yeah. it's a business you know and they they grow that fruit for you all year long there's a lot of labor and and so at the end of the year you know if you don't get paid or you don't get paid on time that's that's hurtful yeah so yeah we we really have really tried hard to make sure that we treat our growers with respect and you know, we've we've never stiffed anyone and never would, and uh, you know that that means something. Yeah, well. I think it's really tough too after you know COVID and after the fires of uh, of 2020. Um, I think. It must have been really hard. I, I know that you and I kind of discussed it in one of my first podcasts. I kind of talked about how you couldn't even bottle anything because everything was shut down, and it wasn't even necessarily. Was it the? It wasn't necessarily the bottling line, right? It was just kind of like a. Yeah, everything was shut down, and and, and you know the 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 fires of 2020. You know, um, grapes get smoke tainted, and um, that you just it's, it's really difficult um, when you get that chemical compound in the juice. Mm -hmm. It's it does not taste good. Right. And so we had you know of course the very difficult conversations at a time like meeting with growers saying you know I'm not going to take it this year I can't and you feel terrible but also you know if I bought a whole bunch of Rogers Creek Syrah and it was all smoky and I made terrible wine it could put me out of business you yeah. know so um, they understood all, all the growers understood they were really they were they made it easy you know for us and and they understood the situation I mean we made wine in 2020 uh, just a lot less than normal mm -hmm. and more white than red, not much red at all. Um, the whites turned out good, and I'm very Most proud. of the white was already picked, right? Well, and, and um, a couple of bars are mm -hmm. from places where they didn't get the extreme smoke. Okay. And off the skins mm -hmm. very quickly and those kind of things. Um, but, you know, some of the areas, the, the smoke started early, like mid-August. Right. Um, some of the fires later whites were picked mm -hmm. but it, it was a tough it was a completely horrendous year for growers and a, a ter terrible year for wine I mean it was difficult you know I mean at times you realize that yep mother nature's in charge yes and uh, it was a tough year for everyone and ho hopefully this year I mean we we have fires 
in the northern part of California, not in you know wine country mm-hmm. around here. Mm-hmm. Um, Lake Tahoe has issues with with air quality right now, but around you know all our vineyards are safe and in good shape, and we're kind of knocking on wood. Um, I I think that everyone in the industry is looking at you know how to deal and mitigate with mitigate the fire damage and fire control mm-hmm. and everyone. It's it's such a hot point issue right now in California that a lot of effort is b- being put into, uh, you know, how this, this is kind of an ongoing issue now, right. so what are we going to do? Yeah. And um, so far this year, I feel good about things. It's a smaller crop out there. Um, it's kind of a, a drought year, but we don't see, um, well, a real drought year. Um, we don't see any vineyards really with hydric stress. Um, all our seem in pretty good shape, mm. so we're happy there, but, you know, hopefully... We'll get some rain, yeah, and we'll get some snow in the mountains this winter, and um, we'll hopefully get a little bit, you know, ease this uh, pressure on on water supply that right. is very evident right now. Yeah, yeah, I keep hearing about it. Uh, also in the news, I mean, outside of just the just the uh, uh, wine industry as well, that water is a major issue. So I was curious to see uh, curious to see firefighting without water. This sounds. Yeah, I mean, you know, agriculture in Cal- you know, the, uh, California has a lot of agriculture, not only grapes, but so many things, and it, it takes a lot of water. And when you cut off the water supply to, to farmers, then we have real issues. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that will not be the case going forward, uh, but it is a really high level of concern mm-hmm. for sure. And driving, driving the last three years up and down the five from San Francisco to Southern California to see my family... I, I see all the time, you know, there's all these orchards, there's all kinds of trees that are being planted constantly, but then there's also giant lots that are just barren, and people have rolled out trailers and say, like, um, need water for food, you know, and, and like, uh, uh, you know, the California drought is real, and, and it's just kind of interesting to think that I've, I've only been back in California for three years, and having lived in Southern California in a mountainous area, I didn't really see a lot of drought or anything like that. But um, but major changes since your time in the Bay Area, not only weather-wise, but also fires, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, and it's kind of cliche now, but, you know, climate change is real. Yeah. And, you know, we used to have, you know, vintages out at Rogers Creek on the Sonoma Coast. It was, it was hard to get it right. Right. Not anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and then also, too, I, I would think I was talking to you recently about it. Um, and the Austrian and the German producers have started to move away from putting the, the ripeness level of the grapes on their wines and have started moving into more like vineyard-specific AOCs, similar to what France is doing, similarly because of the ripeness. Um, England is making sparkling wine. Germany is making more red wine than they ever have been. It's, it's kind of crazy to see. Um, I was at Spotswood recently, and uh, we were up there talking with, uh, um, I wish I had her name because she told me to tell you hello. Damn it. Okay, I'll, I'll figure it out afterwards. But uh, Mary Pat Sullivan? Yeah, that's her name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah she, uh, she was like, oh, my God, John, I haven't seen him in so long. I meant to call him. Uh, but uh, she said that there's about a two- or three-acre lot that they have um, just across this little river that they have there. And the guys are just planting like all kinds of grapes, like 22 different kinds of grapes, because they're they want to know what's going to do the best. Because you know, in a decade or more, Cabernet might not be suitable for the, the 
climate of Napa anymore. It's kind of people have to be forward thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have to admit, I hate that thought because um, Napa is one of the great places in the world to grow Cabernet mm-hmm. Sauvignon. Um, but but the climate's changing, yeah. and and so we have to adapt and change with it. Um, I think you know. A lot of these coastal vineyards, it's a little bit cooler, so maybe they're a little bit more well-suited. Um, some of the inland places, it's, it's you know, getting warmer and drier, mm-hmm. you know, so that is definitely going to affect, you know, what you plant and what's going to work there. And what, what we've learned, and, and one of the things that happened with phylloxera in California, as devastating as that was, when people replanted, they, were, they replanted better, smarter, um, more appropriate clones, more appropriate varietals. Um, we got better at what we did. Right. It was a hard lesson, um, but the wines are better now. Mission started to move out, and Cabernet started to move in. Yeah, I mean, um, so as ta- as time has gone by, you know, we've learned more about the environment and what to grow where, and it's not just plant anything anywhere. Mm. And we don't we don't want a monoculture. We don't just want grapevines and nothing else. We want kind of want everything. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the climate is changing, and we're going to have to change with it. Yeah. Oh, well, that got heavy. It got a little got a little dark. So let's talk uh, one more fun thing. What's a bottle that you've had lately that is really awesome that you're really excited about? I know you've been buying some stuff in anticipation of uh, Boulevard's reopening, yes. um, which we could talk about. What's the, the date again? Is September... 22nd or 23rd. September 22nd or 23rd, right. Boulevard, San Francisco will be yep. reopening. Um, but uh, aside from buying certain things, have you had anything recently that just was a... Where to start? You're so excited about. <laughs> <laughs> just anything. You Give me your top uh, five. It doesn't have to be a number like, one. Um, uh, let's see, like uh, something with a little bit of age on it. A producer I like in Jeffrey Chambertin a lot, Joseph Rotti. Oh, yeah, okay. So uh, bought some 2011 uh, Joseph Rotti Jeffrey Chambertin. Awesome. And just a beautiful bottle of wine, like silky, elegant, flavorful, perfume, just everything that Burgundy should be. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of light on its feet, yet really delivers a lot of flavor. Um, super cool. Um, and I, I like the uh, kind of the style of right. the Joseph Roti wines. So that would be one. Um, 19 is a, a really going to be a really great um, white burgundy vintage. Awesome. Cla- just classicism, just mm-hmm. classics. Um, drank a Louis Michel Buteau Vie Vigne. So he, he does, he, oh, he has a bit of the Premier Cru Buteau. Mm-hmm. And then there's some older vines planted in the early 60s. And in, in the right years, I think most years, but in the right years, he does a, a separate bottling of the old vines wow. of Buteau. And I, I always, I love that wine and um, had one of those. And just, just classic Chablis, just pinpoint um, and a little bit of like, you know, honeyed citrus on the nose and then just perfectly classic Chablis. And as I'm drinking that, I'm just like, this is the kind of Chardonnay I like to have. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is. Um, I uh, met an old uh, a friend, an old Psalm from here, and we used to uh, get together once a year and grab some bottles and have dinner mm-hmm. away from our families. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we did that, and we, we drank... Uh, uh, champagne from Jacques Salos. Oh yeah, um, 
my, my favorite guy in Champagne. Um, and it was not the rosé, which sometimes word, words can't describe how good that is. Uh, but it was it was uh, one of his Blanc de Blancs and just beautiful wine. Um, then we had a little uh, Raveneau Chablis from 2012. Okay. Um, you know, I know Raveneau, say what you want, but the wines are great. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we had some uh, Jean-Louis Chavermitage from 07. And I, I you know, it's it's humbling and beautiful at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, I think to myself, could I ever make a Syrah this good? No, <laughs> I don't think I can. But uh, not fair. But, That's but not gratifying fair. just to have it. And, uh, you know, I'm a, a big fan of what they do at Shaw. Sometimes these days, you know, the wines need some, you know, need some time in the cellar. But uh, they, when you're able to do that, they deliver. I feel like Hermitage in general sometimes needs like yeah a little, needs a little bit of a little bit of years a little little cellar time yeah um, but it, it's fun to do that it's you know it's it's like an older generation from a different time or mm-hmm. something where mm-hmm. you know people would buy wine and throw them down in the cellar and forget about it for a while and it doesn't seem to happen as much now for many obvious reasons mm-hmm. um, but when you're able to do it when you put one away and you pull it out and it really delivers like that it's it's such a fun moment yeah you know it's an and, investment. Yeah, and yeah. an investment in pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, um, those are those are a few of the ones. Yeah, life uh, life's been good. It yeah. sounds like. Uh, well, we, we do our best. Uh-huh. And anything else to add, John? Um, you know, just you know, looking forward to uh, getting Boulevard back open. Yeah, good. I I realized a few things in in the last year and a half of being closed. Um, I don't like staying at home. <laughs> I miss buying wine <laughs> and, and tasting more wine, and uh, and I miss all the people you know behind the lay. I miss all the people, and I, I miss talking to Mary Pat at Spotswood, <laughs> and I I miss talking to Ted Lemon at Literai, <laughs> and um, so I, and, and not only do I miss, I miss I miss the wines, <laughs> and it's it's fun when you have. Uh, kind of an experience with a producer like you've been buying them off and on for 25 years and just to see what they bring to the table every year it's just so educational for me fun you know like that's that's why what I do never gets stale because each year it's a new vintage there's new things it's different and there's new producers and you know there's maybe somebody you've never heard of and somebody pours you a glass and you go wow what is that Mm -hmm. or you know maybe you revisit an older Ravino or something and you go this is why I buy Ravino right here this is why and so you know it's endlessly different and and all the time and there's new things and so I miss that I I miss doing those things and so it'll it'll be fun to be back Um, hopefully um It'll it'll be a world where we can all you know survive and thrive. It's been a rough couple of years, but you know. Well, looking forward to having you back. Yeah, it'll be good to be back. Looking forward to coming and eat. We'll be, we'll be here. <laughs> and obviously, you know, maybe maybe drink a little bit of wine. Sure. Yeah. All right, John. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right.